On Before the Bestseller, we talk with our favorite authors about the books they wrote and the stories behind how those books made it big. I'm your host, Alex Straffy, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Ever have a conversation with someone and you're left feeling like there's something very, very different about the person you were just talking to? They somehow talk to your soul, and it was refreshing and maybe even inspiring. So many people proclaim to hate small talk, but what does it actually mean to do the contrary? How can you create moments throughout your day where you actually connect with the people around you? Ask Powerful Questions is the book that teaches you how to have meaningful conversations. Meaningful conversations with your colleagues, prospects, family, your friends, and the grocery store checkout man. Chad Littlefield wrote the book with the late, great Will Wise. He's a TEDx speaker, founder and CEO of We and Me Incorporated, and has consulted with companies from JetBlue to Starbucks. It's my pleasure to introduce the thoughtful Chad Littlefield. Chad Littlefield, it is such a pleasure to have you on today. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for inviting me. It's a question that starts this conversation, isn't it? Do you yeah. want to come on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we just talked all about questions before this. Um, so the book, I, I said this previously, and I'll give it to you again in case you want to quote it. The book is like how to win friends and influence people on steroids. Uh, that was like one of my first nonfiction books that I ever, it's one of the first books I ever read that I didn't have to read, but let's be honest, I didn't read any of those books either. I just spark noted them. Um, so this is like, actually when I started getting into enjoying reading books, uh, you know, that this about human psychology uh, and, and being intentional and really creating meaningful relationships. Um, so clearly a book after my own heart, which is why I want to have you on. Um, is it hard being the guy that everyone expects to have have and be amazing at relationships? Yeah, I, you know, it's actually uh, really interesting. So um, to break the fourth wall a little bit to anybody who's listening, um, five minutes ago, I was on a call with somebody else, a mentor and teacher of mine, uh, Eric Tyler. And I invited him into our conversation to actually connect Alex, uh, to connect you with him. And... Uh, Right. There's a very intentional moment to make a connection happen. And so, uh, you know, I imagine Dale Carnegie walking around the planet um, and <laughs> people asking, you know, are you listening to understand? Are you ready? They're like, you really um, tuned into how he's being. One of the things that Eric and I talked about before this was uh, the joy that can be stolen when you set unrealistic expectations uh, for yourself. So when a book creates your identity, as opposed to you actually just being who you are. And so I actually wrote down in my last conversation, the idea that, you know, how am I contributing to actually setting standards that are unrealistic for other people um, being in, a, you know, in some, you could probably put me in the, I ate, some people would put me in the category of self-help. And I wrote down, it's okay to have an average meeting. I've been helping uh, people a lot lately have better gatherings, better meetings, more engagement, more connection. I'm like, yeah, but it's also okay to just like have an average meeting and then go to the next one. And uh, I think that's, so I did not have that realization uh, 10 years ago. Now I'm perfectly fine putting in noise canceling headphones on an airplane and not being the relationship person or the how to win friends and influence people. Although I will say typically it's on the way back from a gig. So if I'm going to uh, give a keynote or something, um, 
usually headphones out, have a conversation with the a person if they're open to it, if, if we're feeling it. But on the way back, yeah, giving myself total permission because I think, uh, what's the quote right here? Uh, silence is one of the great arts of conversation. And I might edit that quote to say silence is one of the great lost arts of conversation. And so um, I think that actually part of being the relationship guy, if you will, or the the connection guy is knowing that sometimes the best way to invest in relationships is to not be in dialogue at all, to actually just be with yourself um, in the moment. Yeah. Fun question. Thanks. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into silence towards the end of this because I do want to talk about that. But that I like that you give yourself permission to not be you know, the relationship person, because I'm sure that's quite exhausting, right? It's like everyone expects you to be having these extremely profound conversations. And then all of a sudden your identity is cracked up like that. And then you're not having fun anymore, right? Like the, the yeah. whole point is, is kind of the energy behind it is lost. So it sounds like you found a way to overcome that. So I, after a, um, I give a workshop or a keynote, somebody will come up to me afterward and they'll have questions. They'll want to ask questions. And I've just given a talk on the topic of how to ask powerful questions. And they come up and right after their question, they usually qualify with, was that a powerful one? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, good news. Like I'm actually not the judge of that or the boss of uh, questions. And so, Yeah. I'm not going to lie. The thought popped into my head as I was, you know, I'm going to be questioning you for the next, you know, half an hour to an hour, but they better be the good questions. Right. Uh, but no, that's, I, I like that. Um, I always like to ask every single author we have on here. I, you know, I think it kind of sets the stage for who you are, uh, where you come from a childhood story that made you who you are today. Oh my goodness. I have a lot of thoughts of why that question is so amazing. Um, actually, uh, another thought leader who I uh, really appreciate Garrison Cohen. Uh, shared with me the idea that if you want to bypass someone's prefrontal cortex and speak straight to the core of who they are, tell a story about the time when you were uh, younger than 10 years old, that kind of articulates a piece of who you are. So before I answer that, can I ask, did, did, have you had somebody tell that to you? No, I just learned it along the way. I found that it's a yeah. great way to get people to open up. They they all yeah. suddenly get out of professional mode and they're like, wait, who am I actually as an individual? Uh, and, yeah. and so I just found along. I like how he, he quantifies it with an age. It's like younger than 10 because then you really do go back. Because I do have some people who are like, you know, kind of talk about a time maybe in their, their you know, mid-20s, which isn't necessarily, you know, essential to who they are, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so for me, my mom <laughs> likes to say that she... Um, graduated in the top five of her class in college at Ohio state, because there were only five people in her class. <laughs> um, she studied, she studied medical illustration. So like a doctor at a teaching hospital would come over and say, Hey, I need a, a drawing, like a hand at that time, a hand drawing of this surgery at this stage in the surgery from this angle. So we can put it in a textbook. Can you draw it? And so, wow. um, when me, I have two younger siblings, uh, Ben and Jamie. And so when we played doctor as kids, we like played doctor. My mom would break out the art markers. She would draw these like wild wounds on, uh, on us. Right. So my brother at this one particular time, I remember she drew this huge open wound kind of on his elbow area. And if this was real, like he would be losing blood at a rate that he'd be passed out and dead within minutes. And I came up to him and as we're playing doctor, I was so unconcerned about the clinical side of all this. I was just like, Oh, like, uh, Ben, are you like, are you okay? Like, are you comfortable? Do you need me a pillow? Do you need anything to eat? I was so concerned about the like relationship and the connection um, in that moment, which 
uh, several years later, I saw the movie Patch Adams with Robin Williams, and I had my whole life figured out. I was going to be Patch Adams. I was going to be maybe pediatrician. I was so obsessed uh, with the way in the movie, anyhow, which is based on a true story, um, how Patch was able to actually heal people through human connection. And so, you know, terminally ill patients, not willing to eat, the smartest, best clinicians could not get this guy to eat in the movie. And yet Pat walks in, Patch walks in and with the deepest sense of empathy on the planet that no medical textbook could teach you, looks at him and says, kick the bucket, push the daisies, right? He's like, you would never say that to a terminally ill patient, but this particular guy was curmudgeon enough that he needed somebody to meet him right in that really dark negative place. So anyway, to make a long story longer, um, I think I was tuned into that relationship healing people before I went off and studied it and figured out that like, oh, actually there's some science behind this too. A doctor of the soul, it sounds like. Yeah, um, I like it. There you go. As all great books have, uh, and I want to set the, the foundation for the book, you have a pyramid on which each level of human connection is really built through conversation. Can you walk us through what this pyramid looks like? Yeah. So if you uh, picture a triangle, that's usually the base of a pyramid. Um on one side, there's so there's five levels. So if I'm going to teach you right now how to ask really powerful questions um, at the foundation, I could teach you the mechanics of what really great questions begin with, how to ask them, the source of them, what do you do after you ask them, um, and overarching framings about it. And none of that tactical stuff matters at all unless you get really clear about what your intention is. And so at the very foundation of that pyramid is what is your intent? And ideally, does it include the needs of another? So you picture the word intention at the base of that. Up one level from that is rapport, which Will and I I would define as a relationship of trust. Miriam and Webster might slightly disagree, but we define it as a relationship of trust, not dependent on the amount of time you actually spend with somebody. So trust typically takes a long time to develop. I think that you can actually build a relationship, establish a relationship of trust in 60 to 90 seconds. Above that, you've got openness, which comes from two perspectives. One, when you ask a question, I believe that you have to, that it's now your responsibility to be open to whatever that person has to say to you and to believe them. And so there's an openness there. And then we talk about literally open questions versus closed questions, but from a different angle that uh, you might get from like a counseling uh, department or, or something like that. And then once you've asked the question, rooted in your natural curiosity, that's open you better listen. And so the, the next level is focused on how we listen. We break down multiple levels of that. And at the very tippity top is um, empathy because people are not the objects of our curiosity. And so we need to be really mindful of asking questions that are empathetic um, and not turning people into objects. Well, you know, I'm going to dive uh, deeper into each and every one of those, but for those listening, you know, like like, um, Chad here has said, it's intention, report, openness, listening, and then empathy. So we're going to work through how we work up that pyramid, starting off with intention. How can I bring more intention into dialogue that I'm having with someone? So the tool that I would share with you, if we had 60 seconds, I would say, uh, first of all, get clear about your intent and share it with the person that it affects. And the reason that's so powerful is, um, first of all, we're pretty reactive creatures, us humans. And so rarely do we pause long enough to get clear about what our intent is. When we do, even more rarely do we actually share it with the people that it affects. And so when we have intentions though, that affect other people and we don't clue them in to those intents, 
that is manipulation. Or I would argue that that is manipulation, trying to get somebody to do something. And so uh, get really clear about your intent. Make sure that it encompasses the needs of what somebody else cares about and share it with them. That's really it. It's one sentence. It can be done in less than 60 seconds at the beginning. But if you do that at the beginning of your meetings, at the beginning of dinner with your spouse, um, just get clear about your intent and share it. The, the level of meaning and the conversation you'll have, I believe will matter significantly more when that's clear. And I, and I mean that quite literally, even like sitting down at dinner with your family, sitting down and actually saying, hey, my intent tonight is to really focus in on what went well today. And because uh, I think it's uh, really useful to remember that parts and let go of some of the other stuff in the day, right? Just that one sentence would add some focus and some clarity and the chances that siblings start fighting with each other might actually even go down because <laughs> you've invited everybody to play a particular game in that moment. You can choose, like everybody can choose to not play or play, but yeah. So we've got our foundation, which is to get super clear on your intent and then share that uh, with the people who it pertains to. Um, we then move on to building report in our conversations. So um, I know one of the most shocking things that I read here was that we shouldn't actually try to find things in common with people, right? Uh, you talk about like, you know, if you like the, you know, the Yankees or something, or, or I don't know if it's the Yankees use, there's an example used in the book, but like, you shouldn't actually try to like, and I've done this so many times where you hear, it's like, oh, you went to Virginia Tech. Oh, I went to Virginia Tech. Do you know X? Oh, do you know Y? And you go on for like five minutes and there's nothing. And then you stop. I think this is the, the example you use. Uh, and then it's like, you have to start again, or like you've wasted that time or there's no connection that's been built, which was like shocking to me, right? Cause that's where a lot of people go. So how do you actually build report without relying on these sort of, you know, cheaper, easier methods of, of trying to find con- uh, connection? Yeah. And I don't think, uh, I <clears throat> absolutely don't think commonalities are bad. And when you ask questions, there will be heaps of commonalities that come out. Sure. It's just that yeah. um, I think the best example is the question that everybody has asked probably several hundred times in their life, depending on their age where are you from? And someone answers that. And almost immediately I can predict that the person's response is going to be, oh, no way. One time I drove through Boston. It's like some connection. And every once in a while, I call the geography lottery uh, because every once in a while you hit the jackpot and you're like, no way we were neighbors. You were my babysitter and you just look different now. But realistically that happens so, so rarely. And so uh, we end up with like, oh, cool. You grew up but in a town kind of near me, we played you in football and it just kind of fizzles out. And so uh, I also think that even though uh, human beings, we share an awful lot of DNA and an awful lot of commonalities, 98, probably a lot higher than that, but conservatively 98% of our time is not spent with each other. And so we have a lifetime of ungoogleable experiences and stories and perspectives that are sitting in a dark lockbox or chamber only to be accessed with a key that I call a question. Questions are one of the best ways to access uh, uh, what's in there. And so rooted in your natural curiosity, sure, you'll uncover some commonalities as you hear people's response. Um, But also if you, I believe that, uh, and I think this is especially important right now in the narrative in the world is uh, lots about polarization. I believe fundamentally that curiosity has the power to transform differences into connection, right? That if, if I see you, you're on the opposite end of the aisle, um, opposite end of the perspective, if I can be genuinely curious, 
And here's, here's the problem with being curious about people we disagree with is oftentimes when curiosity, and if you're just listening, I'm pointing to my gut as curiosity rises up in your gut and gets to your larynx and ekes out of your mouth. Oftentimes it grabs a little bit of judgment with it along the way. And so by the time it leaves your mouth, you've got a curious question, but it's like, why did you do that? Which inherently is feeling this like what you're doing, the way you're living your life, the choices you are making are wrong and I'm right. And I'm trying to figure out why you're dumb. And so, yeah. The curiosity leads us perfectly into openness, right? Which is the next level and you have a, you start off that chapter with a fantastic quote, which is you can tell whether a man is clever by his answers, and you can tell whether a man is wise by his questions, uh, which is something I've heard over and over again, uh, and, and just reigns so true. So what types of questions should you be asking to indicate openness? So this is, I feel like coming in, by giving you the Sparks Note version, I'm cheating the depth that uh, we go into in this chapter, but I think it's one of the most practical um, lowest hanging fruit tools at the moment you take your headphones out, you can actually start implementing and it really transforms the way you ask questions. Yeah. And so, um, asking questions that are open, meaning the response, the possible responses are many, right? If I ask you what time it is, there's pretty much, well, I was gonna say one answer to that. There's a lot of time zones though. Uh, it's a very quick, uh, clear cut answer. If I can ask questions, and this is a good example because there's an exception to every rule, but if I can ask questions that specifically begin with only one of two words, and I'm going to let you guess them actually, um, and you've read the book and so you probably will pass this quiz pretty well, but I would say typically, not always, but typically open-ended questions, meaning sentences that end in a question mark, begin with one of three words, what, how, or why. Do you remember which word we invite you to cut out of your vocabulary? We should not be using why uh, in in our questions. Yeah. What? And uh, that creates anger in some people because they're like, ah, why is such an important question? It's a good question. We've got a question. We got a Simon Sinek. We've got to know our why. It's like, actually, I don't disagree with that. It's very fundamentally different than asking a question that begins with why, because questions that begin with why ask for rationale and judgment and reasons. And if you're trying to build a relationship of trust with somebody, it's really hard to do that when you're trying to, when they're, when you're asking them to justify themselves to you. The second reason though, and my favorite reason, and I actually don't even remember how much we go into the um, neuroplasticity uh, part of this tool is that if you force yourself to ask questions that only begin with how or what, if your intent is to build a relationship of trust, right? If you're trying to like solve a problem and unpack something or whatever, maybe why questions are appropriate. But if your intention is to build a relationship of trust, asking questions that only begin with how or what actually trick your brain into asking more intentional questions. Because when you are ages three to five, you are walking around the planet asking, why is the red light red? Why is the grass green? Why is the green light green? Why do I keep asking about colors? Right. And so our brains get really good at asking why questions. And so simply by asking questions that only begin with how or what forces you to like reel in your curiosity and reframe it as something um, more intentional. When I was reading that study that you mentioned, I was sitting at a coffee shop and my girlfriend is someone who likes to ask a lot of questions. And I think it's fantastic because it, it's like, I'm almost attracted to the curiosity, right? I think we all are, you know, we, I mean, we are attracted to curious people, right? That's, I think, a big part of it. And so, you know, in this, you, you know, it goes over 
the average amounts of questions that a kid asks, the average amount of questions that an adult asks. And she'd actually asked me recently, what do you think the average amount of questions an adult asks in a day is? Uh, because she's like, she's like, she knows she asked so many questions and that in itself was one of her questions. And so I, it was nice. I sent a photo of that. I took a photo of that study and I sent it off to her, uh, about that curiosity. Um, but another example you have is like being curious, uh, or you talk a lot about being curious kind of in the right way, right? Like you talk about the teller who has a tattoo and you, had, it was two different people in a, in a uh, group session. And one said, I asked that person, uh, you know, like, uh, it was some question specific to the tattoo. Like, um, you know, it was something like, I forget the, what the specific question was, but it was, I asked, to that it, it was me in that story. So I remember it quite vividly because oh, it actually okay. happened. Yeah. So I go up to the walk clerk us, and I, yeah. I, I asked, I'll share the quick version, but I was teaching a class at, um, kind of embedded within Penn state university. And, uh, we had all the students leave the classroom to go test out the tool of rapport and building a relationship of trust by asking a question rooted in a natural curiosity based on what somebody's wearing, caring, sharing, or presenting. And so you can imagine a bunch of college students are like, we're going to do what now? And so I don't believe in practicing uh, preaching when I'm not practicing. This particular time, Will and I taught this class multiple uh, semesters in a row. I did, just didn't feel like doing this exercise. And yeah, I figured if I had to do it, I might as well get something done while I'm at it. And so I walked downtown to this convenience store and the uh, clerk had bright colored tattoos all over her neck. And I looked at her and I said, oh, my, you know, I'm, in my mind, I'm like, I teach this stuff for a living. This is, I got this. And uh, I get to the front and I'm like, oh, I just have to ask, what's the story behind your tattoos? I love them. She goes, eh, I like the colors which was like a very um, middle finger kind of thing in my face. Half hour goes by. One of the quieter students in the class actually quiets everybody down to debrief. And it's like, all right, I know we're going to debrief this, but like, I got to, I got to tell you, I was not happy about this exercise. I did not want to do this. I figured if I had to do it, I might as well get something done while I'm at it. And so I walked downtown to this convenience store. And as I was checking out that there was this clerk that had bright tattoos all over her neck. And I got to the front and I looked at her and I said, I just have to ask how annoying does it get when people ask you about your tattoos? And she goes, oh, you have no idea. In fact, there was just this guy in here asking me, what's the story behind your tattoos? <laughs> right. It's like so fundamentally, yeah. yeah. And I think there, skipping a layer in the pyramid up to empathy, <laughs> the main difference between his experience and my experience was that he, he asked it from a place of empathetic curiosity. I asked mine from a place of curiosity. I followed all the tools that we share right up until that missing ingredient of empathy. I didn't consider what must it be like to be you and have tattoos that everybody can see all the time. Yeah. Approaching that question from, you know, how not just, okay, here's a feature of them, but how do I think this feature makes them feel? Um, that was what actually inspired me to ask the first question when we hopped on was what does it feel like to be the relationship guy and have people always expecting ah, uh, I love it. to do that? <laughs> so that's a, my little tie in there. Um, going back to, to openness, um, you know, it's funny that just by being asked something, you'll be more likely to do something, which is something you talk about, uh, which is an interesting study. Do you mind touching on that study really quick? Because I feel like that's, you know, aside from just even conversations like from marketing or, or just other aspects, like just knowing that by asking a question, you, know, you can kind of reshape how someone's viewing something like buying a car, for example. Can you dive into that a little bit? 
Yeah. Yeah. So the study <laughs> earlier that you mentioned is, uh, references that kids between the ages of three and five ask 300 to 400 questions per day. Adults ask yeah. six to 12, right? This study, um, I, I almost actually didn't put it in the book because I think it has the potential to give people the idea that questions are a great tool to manipulate people. Yeah. And this is where my question is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, not the intent, but the, the study basically found that um, questions are remarkably effective at sparking action in people. And so I actually don't remember all the specific numbers off my uh, head, but there were three studies that we quoted. Um, one was asking people about their intent to buy a car, increasing people's chances that they actually bought a car by a about, I want to say 8.6% was that one. Um, yeah, I think that one was a, a higher one. I think the, and then there was, yeah, there was voting, there was buying a car. And then there was a, there was a third one there too. Yeah. Voting, donating blood. was one, donating one blood, reason that's it's not in the book yeah. that I just stumbled on is actually um, people were they're trying to get more people to become organ donors. And so they um, invite people and say, Hey, come be an organ donor in one group. In another group, they said, can you take this five question survey on organ donation? And they took it five, whatever questions about someone about organ donation, and then asked people, Hey, would you come uh, become an organ donor? And it nearly doubled the rate that people became an organ donor by just being asked five little questions. So I was like, and so the way that I understand to, to, to my best understanding, the way that questions work in the brain is that it is a really wonderful tool that forces your prefrontal cortex to turn on. In fact, when I used to live in Asheville, North Carolina, and when I moved there in the first two or three years, I probably had, uh, not probably, I actually kept business cards from people. I had about two to 300 one-to-one conversations with people as a way of kind of settling into Asheville. And I realized about halfway through that, so about a hundred people in, I realized, wow, I'm asking all the questions. In fact, if I were to count the number of questions that somebody else asks, I could definitely count them on one hand. And so I started in the middle of conversation saying, pausing and saying, wow, I realized that I've been asking all the questions. What are you curious about right now? And just and, and every single time in the next hundred or so people that I did that with, every single time I saw their brain pause, their eyes look up to the left and they were like, I need to consider that, right? It's not top of mind. I need to actually reach in and access that turns on people's brain. And so I've stopped actually for that same reason at the end of a a workshop or presentation, I've stopped asking people any questions because, and instead I say, come up with a question. Think about the last 45 minutes. And I say it lovingly, but I say, everybody, you got 30 seconds, tap into what you're naturally curious about and write a question down. You don't have to ask it, but at least pass one question through your prefrontal cortex right now. And then when I ask any questions, about 60% of an audience of even 5,000 will raise their hand because they've got a question because you gave them time, you gave the brain time to consider. Wow. I love that Uh, for a quick little tip for like public speaking events. I mean, really, yeah. Ask people to ask people to come up with a question and then, you know, say, you, you know, you don't have to answer this. You don't have to actually make this public. And then say, okay, now who here has a question that they want to ask? And then you're going to have such a great return rate. Uh, we'll get into the marketing of, of things uh, in the next one, but it's kind of like asking people to write an Amazon review ahead of time. So that way, when like a book goes live, they've already written the review and it's like, okay, well, now can you just, it's like less effort. You're asking them to do the, uh, do the part that is the least amount of, or, you know, do the part that takes the effort without the fear of what that, you know, might end up being, which is time commitment or, or whatever have you. Um, moving on to the, the next sort of level here which is onto listening. 
what is reflective listening and how can you use it to show uh, people that you actually understand them? It's me holding a mirror up to what you said. So uh, I'm not going to unpack all the levels that we go into, but at, at one continuum, you can have verbatim reflective listening. On one hand, you can have verbatim reflective listening, right? Where you literally repeat the exact same words that somebody uh, said. Yeah. On the whole other spectrum, you've got a uh, far out reflective listening where you say something to me and I hear something that you absolutely did not say to me literally, but I reflect it back as this is what I heard you, this is what I hear you really saying, Yeah. right? So I hear you saying um, that you want me to clean my room, mom, but really what I hear you saying is that you're angry at me. That's what I really, so that would be an example of far out reflective listening, but really holding up a mirror to somebody else's words. It surprises me when you do verbatim reflective listening, it is remarkable how many times people will come back to you and be like, no, 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 no. And then like add on or correct or adjust. And it's like, no, you literally just said that verbatim. Um, and yeah. yet there's this correction because how we rarely hear our words fed back to us. It's a really lovely gift to ensure that someone feels seen, heard and understood too. Any other ways that you can help people feel like they're actually being understood in a conversation? I think... Sure, lots. One of them, um, I like reflective questions. So sometimes, you know, I, to trick yourself into better listening, I invite people to respond to what somebody has said as an experiment, respond to what somebody has said in a sentence that ends in a question mark. So no matter how badly you want to say, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's such a cool story about scuba diving that you just told me. Wow. Right. Push down, suppress that need to respond in a sentence that ends in a period just for a minute and just tap into what are you curious about based on what you just heard and toss out a question. And I call that a reflective question because uh, you're reflecting in what somebody said. So, hey, I just heard you talk about scuba diving. I'm really curious how you got certified to begin with, right? Yeah. Tapping in, going into either another dimension or another layer of what that conversation is um, deepens the conversation. And, and also simultaneously says, I hear what you're saying. I'm following it so closely that I have more questions about it. Going deeper, uh, not just taking yeah. that first answer, but actually, you know, going deeper with a, a question mark statement, going a little bit deeper there. Um, is it, what about the nuance, uh, in terms of reflective listening between, I don't know, a conversation with your, you know, your spouse or a conversation with, uh, an executive or a conversation with your kid? Um, you know, it would, would there, is there any variation there on uh, how you'd approach each of those conversations with that type of listening? That's so funny. My gut response, <laughs> this can't be the right answer, but my gut response was no, absolutely not reflect exactly as you would to, uh, your spouse, to your boss, to anybody else. Because I think, and the reason I'm, I think that's gutturally coming up for me is that the best reflective listening is honest. It's not manufactured. You're not yeah. trying too hard. It's like, you've actually heard what Just they've being said. Genuine. Yeah. And you're, and you're uh, feeding it back to them in, in one of a, a handful of methods that we talk about in the book. And one of the most important parts that you talk about of this whole pyramid and what's you know, the cherry on top is empathy, right? And you talk about the difference between apathy, sympathy, and then empathy. And this is a big thing that as a society we've moved through recently where it's okay, having sympathy, or is it empathy? Um, the big difference there. Um, which one is most vital for a conversation? For those of you that have been listening, you probably already know the answer to this because we have covered this. But uh, what is the difference between the, the three and, and how can we make sure that we are you know, utilizing this one in the best way? 
I'm going to take a risk here. Okay. Hope it works out. Um, so I could answer uh, that. And Will and I created this book and these tools um, from the breeding grounds of very difficult conversations. So we were helping people lead and be in dialogues in groups typically, um, but also in one-to-one dialogues with people about really soft, fluffy topics like long-term conflict, race relations, politics, gender, sexuality, et cetera, religion for 90 minutes with the sole purpose of skipping headlines and actually understanding the other. And so I want to pick currently at the time of this recording, what's a very difficult topic. There's a really horrific school shooting in Texas, 18, 19 elementary school students. And so I would say that when you get that news in your feed, you have one of three choices, apathy, sympathy, or empathy. On one hand, apathy, you can say, this stuff happens. I can't do anything about it. Let it go. On the second hand, sympathy, which I have found myself actually falling into in the last couple of days, is that I am so enmeshed in that situation as a dad of a young kid with a second kiddo on the way. I'm so enmeshed in that situation that like, I am just like fallen into that emotion so much so that I can't be useful, that I'm just absolutely like paralyzed by the horrific sadness that comes with that. And the third choice we would argue is empathy, which some people would say is putting your shoes, your feet into somebody else's shoes. Me and Will would actually say that it's putting one of your feet into one of somebody else's shoes so that you can say, what is the world like for you? And also stay firmly rooted and grounded in your own reality. And so to say, oh my God, as I think about being a parent of one of those kids in Texas, I actually have chills as I'm recording this right now. And simultaneously, I'm able to recognize that I'm not in that situation, that I don't need to actually be swept all up in these emotions. And in fact, I can't be useful to someone. I can't be of service to somebody if I'm so enmeshed in their situation that I'm feeling exactly what they're feeling right now. It's a great service to not be feeling what somebody else is feeling to some degree and to just tap into a piece of that. Then how do you, so then... So the, the part for me that matters to, to this most, because I, I as you were describing that, I was going through where do I stand in the situation that you just went over, right? And I was like, to be honest, I've taken this somewhat, not that I don't care, but apathetic approach, because it's like this happens over and over again. We see the exact same news cycle. Everyone cries about it. Everyone, you know, but nothing actually gets done. So how can you use that empathy to actually make progress? <clears throat> You'd have had to have paid me a million dollars to be on this podcast if I had the answer to that question. I think <laughs> I, I don't. I don't say that lightly. I think um, one of the reasons that you are sitting here saying nothing ever happens, and many other people are saying, "What the heck? This keeps happening, and nothing ever changes." Um, I think one of the reasons that's the case is because uh, like social change is remarkably complex, and as a society, our comfort with complexity is very low. And so it becomes like either this or this, we must ban this. We must do that. Like it's, it's just like one thing, but, but actually there's, uh, every social issue, like I wish it was really simple too, but it's incredibly 
complex. And so and, and like any system, if you change one part of it, something else pops up, right? You make drugs yeah. illegal, people sell them illegally. You make drugs legal. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen research on what's happened as we've made pot <laughs> legal in lots of states in the US. But um, yeah, so man, I don't have the the answer to that. What would I'm, I not, know I'm not telling is... you to solve the gun control issue. I just mean, yeah, like, how sure. can we use empathy <laughs> to move forward? How can we use that em- empathy in conversations where it you know, becomes actionable? Or that's the, that is the, um, you know, that's how we should feel about it. Yeah, I think it's, I think it simply is actually the, the power in having awareness of the three choices. I can choose, yeah. it's not like I just am, I can choose actually to be apathetic, sympathetic, or empathetic. And if I'm empathetic and I have one foot grounded in my own reality, I actually have the choice to then do something and turn that into action. I would argue in sympathy and apathy, you don't even really, you haven't brought yourself up to the point where you even have the choice to do anything about it. And so That's you're just stuck in that place. When you're in that conversation with someone, it's okay. And, and you know, you talked about where this lady who has a friend who comes over from an ab- abusive boyfriend all the time from different abusive boyfriends, you know, instead of saying, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, you okay. Like how can I help you? It's like, okay. Like, what has he done this time? Like, who is he? Like, what can I do? Like, it's like, it's just a very different sort of approach to that conversation. This is kind of what you're saying is like, yes, like you care so much that it's okay. Well then how can you get actionable about that conversation? Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned girlfriend. Um, (laughs) I imagine you've had this encounter and when you get married, I'm sure you will as well to somebody. Um, if you get married, uh, It's very easy. I think particularly, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that uh, men tend to be a little bit apathetic in the sense that they actually skip hearing and empathizing or sympathizing at all with their partner and they jump straight into action mode. (laughs) I'm laughing because that's that's me to a T. Yeah. I mean, you even, you even kind of just, the reason I'm pausing here is because you kind of just did that in this moment. You were like, oh, empathetic listening, like abusive boyfriend, like, okay, like get over it. It's like, ah, actually empathy. If the judge of whether you've been empathetic and whether it's appropriate to move to a place of action is one very simple test. Does that person actually feel heard by you truly very deeply heard in all parts of their being? Do they feel heard? Because if you try to recommend anything, if you try to take any action and you don't have one of your feet really in their shoes and you're actually feeling that, no matter how much it's frustrating you, you're just feeling that, then the actions that you go to take aren't going to be actually received. Nothing's going to change. For sure, nothing's going to change if we just um, recommend. Maybe that's actually why nothing's happening is we recommend changes without the like real depth of empathy that's required uh, to understand what it's like to lose the kid. Yeah. Um, well, my girlfriend's going to thank you for this conversation. So um, <laughs> my, my wife will laugh at me if she hears this conversation. <laughs> She'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chad, the irony of your own expertise, dude. <laughs> yeah. People expect you to just, you know, be top notch with all this stuff. Um, how can you, uh, so you just talked about gun control, very hot topic, debate worthy, right? Uh, I know you talked yep. about some advanced topics towards the end of this, um, and holy cow, time has flown. 
Um, we talk about, so you talk about debate, uh, so we'll wrap it up sort of on this part here. How do you move yourself from going, uh, from the drama of a debate? Cause I found myself in this situation last night. I was uh, at a pool house or I love playing pool. It's like one of my favorite things ever. Uh, and there was some people there who, you know, the, the custom culture is that you put quarters on the table and you're up next. And, uh, they, you know, walked in and they're like, Nope, we're going to own this pool table for the whole night. You know, there's no challenge on this court. Like we're just going to play on this pool table. And then we got stuck in this, the drama of this debate of going back and forth of like, well, who should be playing on this table, right? Um, and that doesn't solve any problems. That just builds emotions. Uh, that's not a conversation. That's not a very pow- powerful conversation. Um, how can you take uh, the drama of debate and instead move to, or to a place of reason and cool-headedness? <clears throat> so partially because of where we're at with time. But mostly because I think this is perhaps the most important lesson of all in asking powerful questions. I'm going to quote one of my uh, mentors, who Jeff Hayes, who used to say, uh, the best way to kill a question is with an answer. So can you just ask that question again? Yeah. So how do you move from the drama of debate uh, to actually a place of reason and cool-headedness? Cool. I would invite you to keep asking that question and see what you come up with. That would be my answer. So I'm not going to actually offer my answer to that. I think there's something to be said just in the fact that you're asking that question. Um, uh, Most people are more socially intelligent than we give them credit for. And so just the act of actually asking questions will start to shift your mindset and your behavior, et cetera. Whereas when you're in that moment, you're in all this drama, you're warped up in it. But if you can pull yourself out of it and remember yourself in that moment to actually view yourself from a distance and say, what could I be doing right now to shift from drama to dialogue in this place? You'll figure out your own answer. You don't need my answer. Removing yourself from the situation. Uh, sounds like uh, we'll do some reflective uh, listening there. Uh, Chad, I, I honestly, I had no idea time was flying so much. I could ask you questions all day just about uh, the book. I don't even know if we we have time for the marketing. Uh, we can talk about that um, you know, for, for another time. But yeah, Chad, such a pleasure having you on talking about asking powerful questions. Um, where can people get more from you and where can people get this book? Google Chad Littlefield, although there was another guy named Chad Littlefield who was murdered. So I'm still alive. It's all good. Um, find the one that's alive. And that's probably the easiest way, especially if you're driving a car or something. Um, Google Chad Littlefield or ask powerful questions. Uh, my company, We and Me, is at we and dot me as well. We give away tons of free resources and some of my favorite questions, et cetera. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I know there's many other things you could have been doing during this time. And I hope you found this episode incredibly useful for you and your journey. And if you did, or if you have any feedback, I would love to hear that in a review on Apple. That would be fantastic or anywhere else that you are listening to this show. So thank you. And if you're the type of listener that is also an author or looking to be an author soon, feel free to email me at alex at advancedamazonads.com. That's alex at advancedamazonads.com. And I'll add you to our weekly newsletter where I send out all of the best marketing tips I've ever heard from authors that I've had on this show and many of the authors that we work with. So I look forward to hearing from you if that's something you'd find useful. And either way, I look forward to having you back for our next episode.